She's a senior researcher at the Peace Research Institute Frankfurt, um, which is interested in African peace and security issues, as well as um, legitimacy and authority, um, debates about legitimacy and authority in international relations. Um, now, military coups became an alarming fixture in the years following Africa's independence from colonial rule. Uh, today, coup frequency has greatly declined in Africa, and many scholars, um, Soare, Tieku, Kao, amongst others, point to the African Union's post-2002 anti-coup regime as one of the factors that has resulted in the decline of coup frequency in Africa. However, we know very little about the ways in which this anti-coup regime impacts politics in individual African states um, that have undergone coups. And this is where um, Wit's work comes in. She's going to tell us about um, what um, restoring um, constitutional government actually looks like on the ground um, in um, individual states that have undergone coups. So with um, that said, I will hand it over to you. Um, it's the ball's all yours. Thank you very much, Miles, and thank you everyone else for joining. Um, I will share my uh, presentation and I hope that it will work. If not, uh, you just give me a shout. Um, that should work now. So yeah, once again, thank you very much for the invitation to present my work here. Um, here. <laughs> uh, here is now a virtual space. I'm still in my office in Frankfurt, but to present my work at the Oxford University uh, African Studies Seminar. And I'm really looking forward to to our discussion uh, after my talk. Now, I would like to start my talk with this picture, which is actually also the starting point of the story of my book. What you see on this picture is called the Lomé Declaration of the Organization of African Unity, OAU. The OAU was the uh, continental organization um, for, for the African continent, and it is the predecessor of today's African Union. Now, this Lomé Declaration was adopted uh, by the summit of the Organization of African Unity in the year 2000 in uh, the city of Lomé, that's my uh, name. Now, the idea of this Lomé Declaration was to make an end to Africa's long history of coup d'etats and what the Organization of African Unity called unconstitutional changes of government. That is, any attempt to reverse sitting governments or presidents by unconstitutional means. Now, in this Lomé Declaration, African heads of state and government condemned coups as an anachronistic act and declared the unconstitutional takeover of governments unacceptable. They also defined what, it, what counts as unconstitutional change of government. More importantly, they mandated the continental organization to work for the re-establishment of constitutional order in situations where this order has been interrupted. That is, as I call it, to undo coup d'etats through diplomacy, mediation, and if necessary, sanctions. Now, what you see on this picture is text on a piece of paper. I want to use this talk to demonstrate that the Lomé Declaration is much more than just text on a piece of paper, namely that it is indeed that it indeed serves to reconfigure power relations and political orders, both within African polities and within the international realm. And I've structured my talk um, in, in five parts. I'll first start by explaining my research interests and situated a bit uh, within the existing literature 
and explain then my own approach or my own analytical perspective um, on this issue. I'll then go on to explain what la crise malgache uh, is, the situation in Madagascar just before um, the what came to be called um, constitutional change of government. I'll then go on and uh, present um, some of my main findings. That is, the Persecu intervention in Madagascar was an effective process of ordering both in Madagascar and uh, beyond. I will then, in the fourth uh, part, I'll take a bit of a broader perspective and look at uh, the, the effects of the anti-coup policy of the African Union more generally beyond uh, the individual case of Madagascar and try to answer the obviously pressing questions, question of whether what I observe in this particular case is also somehow um, generalizable to other situations of post-coup interventions. And then um, I'll conclude. Now, let me start by uh, saying a little bit about uh, the African anti-coup norm. Now, with the transformation of the Organization of African Unity into the African Union in 2002, the anti-coup norm became binding continental law. And it was since then implemented by a increasingly intrusive set of institutions at regional and sub-regional level. Since 2004, and that's what you see on the, on the map on this slide, since 2004, um, this anti-coup norm has been invoked in 13 cases in, in altogether 11 different African countries. And you see the list of countries and the particular situations there on this slide. Now, what we see uh, is a relatively automated, uh, almost sort of technical set of practices after that, that uh, starts after a situation in a member state has been declared as unconstitutional change of government. So this automatism is really something that is um, that's quite crucial in the way the African Union so far reacted to, to uh, these situations. Now, while the Lomé Declaration defines what counts as unconstitutional of government, it does not define what it means to re-establish constitutional order, that is, what aims are tied to the undoing of coups and on what grounds the African Union would recognize a successful re-establishment of constitutional order. Now, when we look at uh, the existing literature, we see two broadly competing narratives about the African anti-coup norm and especially the prospects um, of how, how the anti-coup norm will affect politics and life in African states. On the, on the one hand, you have what I call Afro-optimists. We see the anti-coup norm as an expression of a liberal normative shift among African states towards democratic principles and human rights. And their expectation would, uh, would be that the norm contributes to further consolidate liberal norms and democratic values in Africa. On the other hand, what I call Afro-pessimists, are pointing to the fact that actually many of those who adopted the Lomé Declaration did not actually meet the democratic or constitutional criteria enshrined in this anti-coup norm themselves. So the ex expectation there is that the that African presidents adopted the norm to mainly secure their grip on power and to support each other against internal. Now, in this case, it would be regime stability rather than democracy, and that is the sort of expected outcome of the anti-coup uh, regime. Now, the problem with both uh, these approaches is that they reflect the expectations of the respective scholars much more so than an empirical analysis of what the 
anti-coup norm actually does on the ground, as Miles uh, also said in the in the introduction. So, in fact, until now, such an analysis of of the sort of empirical developments once the anti-coup norm is invoked um, is still missing from the from the literature. And also, actually, maybe more importantly, in most of the existing literature, the normative assessment of the researchers are given much more weight than the voices and experiences of those uh, who are actually affected by uh, the, the African anti-coup norm. So in my own research, I therefore try to take a bit of a different route to this uh, issue. My aim was to sort of follow the African Union's anti-coup policy to the locales in which it is enacted and where its consequences can be studied empirically. So I therefore started with a rather broad question, namely, what does it mean to establish constitutional order? More concretely, I wanted to understand how the application of the African Union anti-coup norm affects the reconfiguration of power relations and political orders. And I did so by zooming into one particular case, namely the post-coup intervention in Madagascar that ran from 2009 to 2014. Now, empirically, um, the book is based on several months uh, of field research uh, at actually different sites that were crucial for um, undoing uh, the unconstitutional change of government in Madagascar. So following the policy in this case actually meant going to very different sites. In my case, this was obviously in Madagascar, where I spent several months um, to conduct field research. But also the, uh, but also Addis Ababa, where the headquarters of the African Union um, is, to Khabarone, to the headquarters of the Southern African Development Community, another sub-regional organization that was uh, influential in, um, in this regard, uh, to Johannesburg, because South Africa played an, an important role, and then obviously also to, to France, to Paris, um, uh, because France is a, a former colonial power, um, had an important role to play as well in the re, uh, uh, rebuilding of constitutional order in Madagascar. Now, in all these cases, I conducted more than 100 interviews with Malagasy negotiating parties, civil society representatives, church leaders, journalists, representatives of regional or international organizations, diplomats, and support staff to the international mediators. And these interviews were then complemented by strategy papers from the Malagasy negotiating parties, correspondences between them and the mediators, official documents, as well as Malagasy newspaper reports. I'll come to uh, the second part, the crise um, Malgash, and the situation in Madagascar in early 2009. In early 2009, thousands of Malagasy's joined a rather broad protest movement that was organized against Madagascar's then President Marc Ravalomane. The protest movement drew on very different segments of Madagascar society, and it was led by Ange Radzuel, the then mayor of um, Madagascar's island, uh, the island's uh, capital, I'm sorry, Anton Marivo. So, as I demonstrate in the book, this evolving crise malgache, as it came to be called, was a situation of multiple complex and overlapping experiences of and exposures to crisis, which went 
far beyond the mere dissatisfaction with a particular government in place. It was, as social anthropologist Lauren Hinthorne described it, a general crisis of confidence in the institutions of the state, and it had an important dimension of socioeconomic exclusion and suffering to it. This socioeconomic um, aspect mainly referred to question of acquisition and use of land, consequences of extractive industries and agro-farming, youth poverty and unemployment, to just um, give you an idea about this, um, this sort of dimension to the crisis or to crisis in general. In March 2009, and driven by the protest movement, the army arrested Ravaloman, the president, and installed Hans Razuel, the mayor of Antanarivo, as president of the transition. Ravaloman, the ousted president, in turn fled into exile to South Africa. Now, viewed from Addis Ababa, from the headquarters of the African Union, this situation was an unconstitutional change of government. And so, La crise malgache became an issue for the African Union's Peace and Security Council. In the choreography prescribed by the anti-coup norm, the Peace and Security Council decided to suspend Madagascar's membership and demanded the immediate restoration of constitutional order. At first, there was great divergence among international and regional actors with regard to how to interpret the situation on the island and in particular, so how to respond to it. So not everyone aligned initially with the African Union's uh, very, strict, very strict condemnation of the city uh, of the of the situation as as unconstitutional change of government. But after a while, um, like most of international and regional actors, actually converged on the demand for an inclusive and neutral position, as they call it, leading to elections and a altogether speedy return to constitutional order, which was the repeated demand uh, by the African. Now, what followed from this were almost five years of collective international efforts to re-establish constitutional order on the island. Involved in these efforts uh, was a large number of national, regional and international actors. Um, and I've tried to um, illustrate this in, um, in this figure, uh, the, the, the numerous actors involved uh, in, in this process. So um, let me just say a few words about this. Um, in the in the circle in the center, you see the four Malagasy parties that were the main negotiating parties. That is, so the also president of the Butchist president, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, and then the two former presidents, Didier Ratsirak and Albert Zafi, who were actually the only uh, former presidents um, still alive at that time. So among these four um, movances or movements, uh, the, the, the negotiations about the, the return to constitutional order were supposed to take place. And then you had four international mediators at the beginning from four different uh, international or regional organizations. Um, after a while, uh, Joachim Chisano, the former president of Mozambique, became the, the lead mediator uh, in, the, in the name of SADC, the Southern African Development Community. So the three others uh, stepped, uh, stepped back. But still, um, at the beginning you had these four. And then you had regional organizations, obviously the African Union and SADC, but also uh, organizations like the Indian Ocean Commission or the Common Market for Eastern and Southern Africa um, um, playing a role. 
You had international and non-African regional organizations like the European Union and the International Organization of La Francophonie. The United Nations uh, played an important role, World Bank and IMF, obviously, uh, too. And then bilateral partners, um, Madagascar's main um, international aid uh, donors, uh, France, uh, Germany, Switzerland, um, the United States of America, but also um, uh, Madagascar's neighbors, who at uh, especially um, a later point play an important diplomatic role, the Seychelles uh, and Mauritius. So this is what I call in my book, uh, the uh, intervention scenario, um, that is the really multiplicity of, of actors involved in uh, returning Madagascar to constitutional. Now, practically these five years of re-establishing constitutional order involved several rounds of mediation and negotiations among these four uh, Malagasy parties initially, um, several agreements signed and later on reneged from, an international contact group to bring together all these various international actors, targeted sanctions uh, um, applied by the African Union, as well as quite substantive international financial and technical support to organize transitional elections. But um, somehow unsurprisingly, re-establishing constitutional order turned out to be much more difficult than maybe initially envisaged by the African Union. So in fact, the Lomay Declaration only envisaged this to be a process of a few months. Um, and as I said, in the end, it took almost five years. Reasons for this are, um, to a certain extent, the resistance by Malagasy actors to sort of really follow suit on this uh, demand to a speedy return to constitutional order. Difficulties to bring Malagasy actors to actually agree on a transitional roadmap, but also um, these uh, conflicts within the international, or between or among the international actors on how to interpret and how to support um, uh, the situation. So if you want Madagascar, the case of Madagascar is really a sort of prime example of the politics involved in um, in uh, returning a country to constitutional order. But it was in the end only in late 2013 that transitional elections faced, and with the inauguration of a new, uh, of this newly elected government, the African Union's Peace and Security Council in early 2014, then uh, declared that constitutional order had been successfully restored. And this is sort of uh, for the African Union, um, the end of this intervention. Now I'm coming to the third part and the main part of my presentation. I would like to present, uh, as I said, some of the some of the main findings of my study, and I will first concentrate on uh, the findings with regard to Madagascar, to the reordering of Madagascar. Now in my book, I analyze what these efforts to restore constitutional order actually did. As I uh, mentioned at the beginning, and I do so by reconstructing both the concrete practices as well as the overall logic with which constitutional order was restored in Madagascar. And as I said, I would now like to briefly summarize um, some of the insights with regard to Madagascar and then um, uh, go on. Now, with regard to Madagascar, the main sort of uh, a conclusion on what this intervention actually did is that the Persco intervention ultimately served to re-legitimate re the ideal of the liberal polity and to hinder more profound political transformation from taking 
place. And I will now go on and explain what I mean with this, um, with this uh, conclusion. Now, from the very first day onwards, the collective efforts to re-establish constitutional order ultimately focused on reinstalling an internationally recognizable government through more or less democratic elections. And this focus had important consequences for which and whose crises became addressed or not during the transition. In essence, this turned the transition to constitutional order into a technocratic, executive-driven process whose only aim was to organize elections as quickly as possible. So transition became almost synonym with organization of elections. And this effectively depoliticized the situation in Madagascar that had led to the ouster of, of President Gravelman in the first place. I demonstrate this in my book with regard to, among other things, two issues in particular. First, the role uh, of the executive during the transition, which actually outperformed the competences of any other president in the history of Madagascar. I secondly show it with changes in the meaning of reconciliation, which was increasingly reduced to intra-elite bargains rather than a collective process of healing and growing justice. I also show that over the course of time, the efforts to resolve the Malagasy political crisis increasingly moved away from negotiations among Malagasy actors towards securing support for a roadmap to constitutional order that was already written by the international mediators. And I would like to share a quote uh, with you on that. Uh, it is a quote by one of my interviewees from uh, one of the Mouvances, in this case, Mouvance uh, from Albert Zafi. And he goes on and says, every time he, the Sadek uh, mediator Joaquin Chisano, arrives here, he consults everyone. But there have never been direct dialogues between the parties, never. But you enter the room, they collect your ideas. The 11 entities enter one by one. The 11 entities are, uh, are 11 parties or 11, yeah, 11 parties that were um, later on became the signatories of, the, of this roadmap. So the 11 parties enter one by one. He collects their ideas. Afterwards, they do their own thing. And then they say, here are the results of the consultations. All consultations are only facades. It was already written. Now, since the end goal of the transition uh, was already set, namely elections, for Madagascar's political elite, the transition became a matter of political life or death, of being in or being out. Many uh, Malagasy political actors, therefore, uh, were confronted with this, with a, with a situation of a choice of either playing along or becoming politically excluded. Now, this approach to resolving la crise malgache particularly benefited parts of the Malagasy political elite. Their, the main means in their hands was uh, the setting up of political parties, which became then their vehicles to inscribe themselves into the internationally demanded inclusive and consensual transition to constitutional order. In 2011, shortly before the signing of uh, this document, the roadmap, that officially paved the way to transitional elections, the number of registered political parties tripled to more than 300. 
half of the parties who actually signed the roadmap in the end have been established just months before. Negotiation rounds and peace agreements became an opportunity to participate in the future institutions of the state. And this opportunity was willingly responded to by large parts of the Malagasy political elite. And I would like to share a cartoon uh, with you that I think um, depicts the situation um, uh, quite, quite nicely. It's a cartoon by uh, Mami André Naisson, who is uh, one of the, I think, most famous um, cartoonists um, in Madagascar and who, uh, who has his pieces in several uh, newspapers um, and who actually had a, was a great um, chronicler of the, uh, of, the, of the situation and the, and the post-coup situation just uh, by, um, by means of his uh, cartoons. So what you see on this, uh, on this uh, uh, cartoon is a, an aircraft um, waiting there. Uh, and uh, I don't know how many, but really many uh, people queuing up uh, to, still become, uh, to, to still be able to board, uh, board the aircraft. The aircraft is going to uh, Khabarom. It says Ruverg uh, Khabarom. Um, uh, uh, where one of the uh, meetings was supposed to take place to negotiate uh, this roadmap and to uh, uh, sort of set a, a few final um, uh, uh, stones to, uh, to it. So what you see on this, uh, on this picture is a, a long queue of Malagasy's, uh, in this case, party uh, leaders, uh, both female and male, uh, queuing up um, and waiting to still get their seats on this um, uh, on this aircraft. Um, what you see is this great attraction uh, that the uh, opportunity of of peace uh, talks or or negotiations um, actually had. And you also see uh, someone else uh, shouting from within the uh, aircraft. It is uh, probably someone from the mediation team who says, uh, "Don't worry, those." Um, will not be able to embark uh, today, they will be uh, admitted to the, um, to the uh, um, accord, to the list of um, uh, agreement. So that their, um, that their agreement to uh, the roadmap will, be, uh, will also be set in stone. So what you see, I think, well, what this uh, cartoon really um, visualizes is on the one hand, this, this great attraction that, um, that, that the, the uh, mediation or the the opportunity to participate actually um, had for the Malagasy political elite, and then on the other hand, the approach by the mediators to take uh, as as many as possible and on board and to give um, as many as possible the opportunity to present themselves as uh, playing along um, uh, international demand for an inclusive and transition. So inclusivity uh, really uh, at, its, at its best. Now officially this sort of spontaneous establishment of political parties um, that I mentioned uh, and the willingness of many uh, Malagasy to implement the international demand and transition was presented as a solution Malgashu Malgash, so the Malagasy driven solution and that was uh, also, legitimation that the um, that the international mediators had uh, for for this great inclusion, but who these parties actually were and whom they represented was not an important question to the international interveners. And I would like to share another quote with you. This time from 
lead mediator Joaquim Chisano in one of his reports to, to the SADC summit. Now, Chisano writes, um, writes, the roadmap has garnered wide support from political parties, most of them having expressed their willingness to be partnership. It is true that many may have been motivated by the possibility of having their members integrated into the transitional institutions. But they argue that having the opportunity to participate in the process was, was a sufficient incentive. Now, the point that I'm trying to make here is that this depoliticized transition was not an imposition from the outside, but a process of transnational reordering that is crucially built on the um, uh, on the collaboration and agency of Malagasy actors, as much as it was framed and shaped by the norms and practices of international and regional institutions. Now, what this process ultimately ended up doing was, as I said at the beginning, the re-legitimation of the ideal of the liberal polity and an institutional framework to politics based on though empirically unmet, ideals of popular sovereignty and democratic participation. Now, this ideal of the liberal polity, in fact, nourished the political struggle among the Malagasy political elite and placed even more focus on the fight for access to the institutions of the state. For instance, every accord or roadmap to end the crisis entailed an ever larger number of posts and transitional institutions. The number of seats in the legislative institutions, for instance, rose from 160 to more than 500 during the transition. So apart from organizing elections, the primary means to conflict resolution at work here was granting access to and inclusion into the institutions of the state. Now, what did get lost in this technocratic transition? What were the blind spots of this approach? I think um, the two, two main uh, issues here. On the one hand, is, it is quite obvious, uh, it's quite obvious um, that what went missing is space to search and debate, to find solutions in the first place, to problematize uh, or to politicize. The transition, in fact, was never meant to be an open ended process, but the end was, was already defined once. La crise Maigash became subject to the African Union's anti-coup regime. And this had quite profound consequences. It also meant, and that is the second point, that many issues relevant at the beginning of the crisis were left entirely unaddressed uh, in the transition. In particular, there is a striking mismatch between the socioeconomic dimension of crisis in Madagascar in early 2009, which I mentioned at the beginning, and the obsession of the intervention with formal political processes and the institutions of the, of the liberal polity. Now to sum uh, this point up, the almost five years of post-coup intervention left an important imprint in politics and order in Madagascar, even though, or actually because, much seemed to have stayed the same. The intervention did not just re-establish constitutional order, that is, the rule of law, it crucially served to re-legitimate the ideal of the, or in fact, the myth of the liberal polity and helped all those who were in the position to science the momentum to use it for their own benefit. Now, 
the power of this intervention was not its substantive prescriptions, but in fact its exclusions. Its effective hindrance to more profound reforms and to debate, to politicize, and to problematize what was at stake in first coup radicalism. Now, all this is not the outcome of what the African Union did or how the African Union implemented its anti-coup norms. Instead, and that is an, an important uh, argument that I'm trying to make, the reordering of Madagascar is the outcome of a collective transnational interaction in which none of the actors involved was actually able to effectively dominate or steer the, the process. With regard to the African Union in particular, I show uh, in my book an ambiguous simultaneity of prescription and coercion on the one hand, an absence and denial of the organization's own involvement and responsibility for the situation in Madagascar on the other. I also show an, an, an informational disconnect from what was actually going on on the ground and an incapacity to engage the Malagasy actors due to a lack of legitimacy for cultural and uh, linguistic knowledge. But all this, what I described, would not have been possible without the African Union's anti-coup norm, which set the terms for how to handle la crise malgache and provided a legitimation for uh, the implication of the many international and regional actors in finding a solution to this crisis. Now, turning back to uh, the competing narratives in the literature that I mentioned at the beginning of, the, uh, of my talk, what I just outlined clearly contradicts the gloomy expectations of Afro-pessimists, namely that the anti-coup norm merely serves regime stability. This obviously was not the case in Madagascar. But the weight of international sovereignty norms and the need for states to have an internationally recognizable government explains a lot of the pressure and the depoliticization that took place in Madagascar. Afro-optimists, in turn, were definitely too positive about the democ democratizing effects of the anti-coup norm, because, as I have argued, its application effectively hindered more profound political reforms. But the ideals of popular sovereignty, inclusion, and participation are still crucial to understanding just how the situation in Madagascar was sought to be resolved. So while none of these two narrative ca narratives captures the contradicting and ambiguous consequences the first coup intervention had on Madagascar, they both point to important logics behind the collective efforts to re-establish constitutional order that were simultaneously at work. And I will now turn to the um, second part of my observations, namely that reordering the international. So apart from reordering or not uh, Madagascar, Madagascar's policy, the post-coup intervention also contributed to reconfigure orders and power relations internationally. And it contributed to expand the reach of the international both in Madagascar and beyond. So concretely, I identify two um, processes uh, that took place here. The first is identifying new spaces of intervention in Madagascar, of, of international intervention in Madagascar. Many of the problems and, and issues that international interveners identified during the transition, but that were then postponed to a time after the official return to constitutional order, many of these issues 
February later on turned into future international aid and support projects and programs to Madagascar. Reconciliation, for instance, is one of the most famous cases, I think, security sector reform, or in fact, the dire socioeconomic situation. The post-cure intervention and the presence of many international and regional actors, in fact, sharpened the international gaze for the problematic aspects of politics and society in Madagascar and made international intervention something more enduring for the time, for the years to come. The second mechanism that I identify is exploring new realms of action for international and regional organizations. Several of the international and regional uh, actors involved in re-establishing constitutional uh, order in Madagascar, in fact, used the intervention to explore new fields of competence and to expand the formal authorities in particular issue areas. For instance, the organization of the Indian Ocean Commission, COE. For the Indian Ocean Commission, the crisis in Madagascar was the starting point for a more elaborate profile on political cooperation including also the promotion of democratic norms and conflict resolution among its member states. For the African Union turn, the situation in Madagascar became the laboratory for its new post-conflict reconstruction and development policy. So these examples point to an expansion of the capacities and formal authorities of international and regional organizations that have a profound effect on the shape of the international much beyond the specific situation in Madagascar. So although the second part now of my observations is much, much shorter, especially now in the presentation, than the first part, um, it is still um, my aim to stress that when we look at or when we are interested in understanding what post-cure interventions really do, that is to understand their order transforming or order generating consequences, it is not enough to just look at the policies that are um, officially targeted by these interventions, but to really look at the broader uh, international or transnational transformations that are taking place as a result of these uh, interventions. And with this, I'm coming to my uh, fourth uh, part and a shorter one, um, and that is the look beyond Madagascar. Now, one crucial question is obviously how singular or how general my observations on the post-cure intervention in Madagascar really are, especially uh, with regard to the outcomes uh, that I observe. Now, when one looks at the, at the other cases of post-cure intervention under the African Union's anti-Queen War, one can find striking pattern in the way the AU and others react to such situations. And I've brought you this table, which again lists all the situations of post-cure interventions since 2004, that is the date when the Peace and Security Council was established, when the, um, when the institutional setting uh, was, uh, was uh, in place that uh, since then um, implements the African Union's anti-coup regime. Now, what you see on this, uh, on this table is a pattern that revolves around the promotion, like in Madagascar, of an inclusive transition leading to elections as quickly as possible. And you see that here in the middle, that with a very few exceptions, um, this has been the dominant uh, answer to undoing. And unlike the Afro-pessimists argument suggested, the AU anti-coup norm is not used to reinstate 
by all state presidents or to mutually secure a grip on power. You see that here, you see that such situations did occur, um, there, uh, but those were exceptions. They did happen uh, nevertheless. But this is surely not the pattern. One can also see if one, uh, maybe not so much on this table, but if one studies the processes uh, a bit more deeply, one can really see that um, the return to constitutional order in, in most countries was heavily contested, in particular revolving around this question of how and what should be included in the road to constitutional order, so in the however defined transition. And this contestedness of these situations is not least shown in the uh, in the duration uh, that re-establishing constitutional order, which on average was a little less than 20 months, so almost two years, which is in stark difference to what the Lomé Declaration initially uh, envisaged such processes uh, at a time. So the argument that I'm making is that because the African Union treats quite unique situations in similar fashions, it is likely that post-cure interventions in other countries may have similar effects to those I outlined for Madagascar. That is, re-legitimating the ideal of the liberal polity through inclusive transitions and elections. And by this, providing new opportunities for parts of the political elite and depoliticizing the situation that had led to the unconstitutional change of government in the first place. And with this, I would like to come to my conclusion. Now, I started uh, my talk with this text on a piece of paper, which is the Lomé Declaration or the African Union's anti-coup norm. And I said that I wanted to show that it is more than just text on a piece of paper. Maybe then you thought, well, this is a somewhat lame conclusion. Who would have expected this to be just text on a piece of paper anyway? But I think all too often the African Union is still considered to merely produce text to be a paper tiger, quite literally, to not really having any effect. This is also true for political science and international relations scholarship that still prefers studying the effects of global international organizations or Western states on politics and order in Africa, but less so those of African regional institutions. I want to demonstrate with my research that this assumption is a great mistake. I certainly do not want to diminish the impact of global international organizations or Western states uh, and their impact on politics and order in Africa. But reducing our understanding of the international in Africa to such outside actors fails to reflect the crucial institutional transformations that led to the rise of what I call an African international. With African international, I mean a set of structured relations beyond the state, based on the definition and sedimentation of norms to govern particular issues of life, like d'etats. The African Union's anti-coup norm is just one example demonstrating these transformations and their effects on African politics. With the adoption of the Lomé Declaration, the AU has become an important site for the definition of what counts as legitimate order in African states. And this has allowed the promotion of a particular ideal of political order to resolve conflicts within its member states. Now, even though the effects of all this 
might not be as wished or hoped, especially not if one takes the position of all those, like many Malagasy's, who had hoped for more profound change to come. But these effects are nevertheless tangible and they have important consequences for politics and order in Africa and for those interested in studying or shaping them in the future. And with this, I want to thank you for your attention and I'm really looking forward now to our discussion.